Hi there, I'm Melissa, a registered dietitian specialized in intuitive eating for on-again, off-again chronic dieters, and I'm here to help you take the guilt and stress out of eating so you can be the first in your family to break the diet cycle. I'm interested in helping you unlearn generational diet trauma so you can be who you are without food guilt. Be sure to follow on Instagram at nomoreguilt for more support between these episodes. Are you ready? Let's jump in. I don't usually do this, but before we start, I want to give a wee bit of a content warning. I'm doing this because many people I talk to experienced lots of difficult things in their college years that maybe they still haven't addressed or talked about. So I want you to know that this episode will cover experiences of oppression inside college classroom and educational spaces, as well as make mention of things like date rape and domestic violence. And so if this is something that you're just not up for at the moment, today or ever, it's okay. You're welcome to skip this out, come back to it at a time that's better. And to let you know, if you do choose to move forward, this is a really powerful episode that hopefully helps you make meaning of any experiences you've gone through, go through, or someone in your life may go through. So let's hop in and get on with this episode. Well, Densi, I'm so excited to have you today. I became aware of you on the socials. <laughs> I have always been really drawn to your way of speaking, your story. You have an anti-oppressive lens, which I always knew so much from. Before we jump in talking about, we're going to talk about college students. Yes. Um, in part, college students and the college experience, in part because you're a professor. So tell the folks a little bit about you and then let's talk about those college years and how they impact food and body image. Yes. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to share this space with you and your audience. I am a uh, sociology professor. I teach at the community college. Um, I'm a Mexican immigrant from Huichol ancestry, and that really informs how I see the world and how I teach. I have an anti-oppressive lens, an intersectional lens that informs everything that I do and my own lived experience going through the educational system in, in this country. What lights you up as an anti-diet professional? What is the thing that you really love about our space? Wow, a lot of things. I think healing is one of them that I know that, you know, many people can say that they have healed their relationship with food, with their body. And from my own personal experience, I think that will always be a journey for me mm. because I'm still peeling off layers of oppression mm -hmm. and experiences that, that I continue to face that continue to shape how I, how I view food and my body. So for me, it is not a start and end, but but a journey and a growth. Would it be okay to define this word oppression? I feel like it's thrown around, <laughs> you know, like, oh, these systems of oppression, I feel oppressed. And maybe there's like the feeling of oppression and capital O oppression, which are like systems that can impact us. Can you tell us a little bit about what it means to have an anti-oppressive lens so that we go into this conversation thinking about this topic through that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, as a sociologist, so sociology is a study of people and society at the micro, at the individual, and then institutional lens. And if we think about um, oppression or internalized oppression, that is at the individual level. I think about the institution of the family and the values and ideologies that have been transmitted to me 
specifically as a Mexican immigrant woman from, coming from a very uh, traditional um, Catholic household, very oppressive, where I felt controlled, surveilled, monitor, restricted, mm -hmm. feeling a sense of powerlessness because of your identities, because you're a woman, because you're Mexican, because you're an immigrant. We have different marginalized identities. And when we have messages that do not allow us to flourish, to grow, on the contrary, we feel marginalized. We feel like we don't have power and agency. That's how I would say how oppression operates at the individual level. At the institutional level, it's the systems and structures in our systems and in our institutions, the policies and how, I mean, these policies and systems are in place by people. So people create these systems. Mm -hmm. And so one way to dismantle them is to challenge the ideas and to change the policies. So I hope that helps a little. Help. And you're making me think, I talk a lot about generational diet trauma. Of course, that's coming from a white lens. And yes. one of the things that I can already hear might be different between my perspective going through that, or maybe some mm -hmm. of my clients and yours are some of the definitions about what bodies should look like against a white supremacy yes. lens where maybe uh, mm -hmm. thinness, European features, mm -hmm. straight hair, there's different things yes. that can move you closer to that. And so the mm -hmm. farther, it sounds like the farther you get from that, the more weight can really exist on that generational diet trauma that yeah, that that yes, like yeah. So we have the intergenerational trauma. And then we also have the intergenerational trauma, the violence, the oppression that my ancestors have, have gone through, uh, and understanding the impact of that. And if I can elaborate a little bit more and allow myself to be vulnerable for the audience to really understand the perspective as a, as a woman of color, as a Latina and immigrant indigenous. My grandmother was uh, back in Mexico in El Rancho in the little village, very common back in, I don't know, when she was robbed. She was basically kidnapped, very common. She was 15. So she was violently taken away from her family. You know, my grandfather, that is violent. That is traumatic. You know, so she had, you know, three children and one of them was my father. My grandma endured a lot of violence, you know, domestic violence, a lot of patriarchy, a lot of sexism. And what did my grandmother do? She transmitted that to her children. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking at, you know, intergenerational trauma, well, it wasn't my grandmother's fault. Like I have learned to be it took me a long time as a as a young adult i couldn't understand i was very mad at her i just had you know a lot of different feelings but through an education and spirituality and everything i've learned to heal and and be compassionate with her and it wasn't my grandmother's fault she just enforced patriarchy she enforced oppression she thought that was what a woman needed to do that's how she was raised so was it healthy no do i blame her no, I need to understand the situation and the context and, and these systems that were in place that were reinforced by everyone in her family. Right. 
and that she reinforced and town and her community like yes. it is beyond the family and you're so right about that and that is a direct connection right so that's why i'm so when you said what moves me why am i so passionate I am so passionate about anti-dieting and anti with an anti-oppressive lens because it fucked me up. <laughs> it really yeah. damaged me. And I have watery eyes because I still I'm still peeling those layers of oppression. And I'm passionate to dismantle those mental ideologies and bring healing in my classroom. It's everything's interconnected. And in my community, I need to be an advocate for myself, heal so that I can help my community heal. So I can give the language to my college students. So I can let other Latinas, other women of color know, like, you're not alone. Let me help you understand why you feel this way, why you don't like your body, why you have self-hatred, why you don't, the way that you're, you're pronouncing your name or all this different, let me help you understand where this comes from. In a, in a loving way, in a, in a classroom setting where you're not going to get this anywhere else. <laughs> so yeah, I am I am privileged to be in a classroom setting uh, and to have so much power about what books I use and how I teach that I am going to use everything that I have in my my um, disposability to bring that aware con consciousness to my students and also healing and transformation. And that's what sociology is. <laughs> it's a gift and I love how you've brought like that that you're you have an academics heart you told me before she's like I'm a researcher I research things before I do it you have this heart of an academic but you also have this really raw lived experience that I can see you elegantly weaving I can't that must be such a gift to your students to be able to be around someone like you to guide that that that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I know that one of your questions was, you know, what do I see in my college students? And um, you said, you know, what is impacting their relationship with food and their body? And speaking from a college professor at the community college, I live, I think that, you know, demographics matter where you teach, you know, and so I live in California in the Central Coast predominantly Latinx community, agriculture, a working class, first generation, um, many undocumented immigrants. So just to give you a little bit of context. And so that's why I teach where I'm in my dream job. This is where I've been called to be at. So having said that, then I know my student population and I have a responsibility as a professor. Part of decolonizing education is being aware of who your students are and seeing your students holistically and bringing in content and material that can resonate with their lives. I lacked that growing up and, and I'm still, and I'm mad. And I tell my students, you're getting the best education. <laughs> you're getting the education that I did not receive and it is not fair. Yeah. And, and they're like, you'll remember me when you go to the university. And they do, they're like, oh, Dr. Jimenez, you prepare me X, Y, and Z. I'm like, I told you. <laughs> so because yeah, knowing- exactly. like your, your experience is in college, was it within that same population? What was the population? No. Yeah. So I grew up in a, uh, a Latinx immigrant community, Watsonville, California. I grew up actually working in the field. So that that's why I'm so passionate about education and so passionate about everything I do is just because of my lived experience. <laughs> so I went to uh, San Jose State University, Bay Area, uh, here in California, very diverse. It was only an hour away from home. Melissa, it was just only an hour, but it was like 
I felt like I was in a different country. <laughs> yes, because, you know, we're going to be talking about, you know, what impacts college students. You know, I had noted that, you know, growing up in a very traditional home really impacted impacted my body, impacted my body image and my food and going off to the university. Uh, it's like, I'm free. I'm like, tech, quote unquote, I'm yes. like, so I have a lot of freedom. <laughs> and it was very diverse. But I only had one Latina professor who had a PhD and she was from Stanford, one Latina. And I'm like, oh, wow, I can, I can, one, in all my education, and I was an undergrad, I'm like, I want to be like her. I want to have a PhD. And I didn't even know what, I didn't even know what a master's was. Imagine that. And so there was a lack of representation of women of color, especially Latina with PhDs. I have to thank my white professors who, my angel guardians who saw something in me and said, you know, you need to continue on with your education. And um, and I wanna be really honest and tell you that oftentimes we think that it's gonna be other people that look like us, women of color or the professors of color that are going to guide you along your education or journey. That was not my case. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, so I always bring that up to my students. We, You always have to be open you will have the support from people that you didn't think you would have it. And it was, her name is Amy Best. She is an amazing sociologist. She got me through my master's program and she told me go for your PhD. I went to UT, UT Austin in Texas. Again, lack of representation. I thought that the women of color there were gonna be supportive. They were surviving and they were oppressing me. So I was like, this ain't working. This is very toxic. And who did I have? I had a white Jewish professor who became my mentor and my friend. And if it wasn't for him, who believed in my work and my immigrant immigrant rights work and gender, I would not have been able to get a PhD, Melissa, mm. because of a lack of representation, the lack of support in the education system. Mm -hmm. So I'm proud that I had these two amazing white professors who got me through school and um it wasn't the woman that i thought would be there for me and that's okay um i have a lot of compassion it was painful it was painful but i can hear understand that. i can hear that and i can imagine you know at that time like there's this freedom right you're you're away from your home and depending on what your home was like many of us listening had families that were maybe more restrictive around food or critical of body now you're out in the world and you're looking around you. And with that freedom, we all need a template. We all need something to guide us, right? Because that's what how brains work and how yes. stimulate our futures is by mm -hmm. models. Mm -hmm. And so for you, it, I can hear that impact of looking around and like saying, well, how does my body, not just to the degree of the thinness and the fatness, but the color of your skin, yes. but Absolutely. how does my body fit here? Oof. What do people in my body do or not do? These are questions yeah. college age students are yes. asking. And so depending on yes, you know, what you look like and your yep. history and who's around mm -hmm. you, that's gonna create all sorts of different types yes. of permutations of experiences for, for college students that yes, body image and food. It's just Yes, absolutely, yes. And um to just expound on this. It is very important to recognize our different identities that we may have privilege that we all have privileges 
and we can also have marginalized identities. So I recognize that I am tall and I'm thin. That has always, so I have thin privilege. Mm -hmm. I have privilege based on my immigration status. Now I'm a US citizen. I was undocumented growing up. I have language uh, uh, privilege. I speak English. So I recognize all these privileges, but at the same time, I recognize that I'm a brown woman. Thinking about the academic climate where there is academic stress, so now I'm going to talk about the, the different pointers here. So there's academic stress to, you know, academic performance. That's one thing, right? And the other is part of the academic stress and as a, a person of color could also be feeling like an imposter. An imposter right. is this phenomenon where you doubt your skills, your abilities, your intent, and your, you know, your gifts, your talents, like how badass you are, you, you doubt that. <laughs> and you feel like a fraud, you feel like you're not good enough, or, you know, you, it's, it's, it's devastating to have the imposter syndrome. So you're navigating that. In addition to how you occupy space in the classroom, how you occupy, how you use your voice in class. So there's a lot of negotiation, there's a lot there's a lot for for uh for a for a student of color and now adding that stress and the imposter syndrome feeling lonely feeling isolated feeling out of place being homesick so then there's a cultural components too right there's academic climate if there aren't support systems in place in these institute higher institutions if they're, the student is not going to a, you know, the diversity center or whatever clubs they have, the student feels lonely and isolated. The student feels out of place. It's going to impact their relationship with food. It's going to impact their body image, especially if they're one of the few students of color. Their body is so visible. Their body is visible. It is marked visible, yet they're invisible in the classroom. Yeah. You're hyper visible, yet you're invisible and silenced. Yeah. And there's not always support or modeling to help you through. And so in some ways, when disordered eating develops, is it healthy? Is it ideal? Maybe not. Is it res resilient? Is it coping that can work for a little while? Yeah. And so anyone who shares Hortensia's background, or if you develop disordered eating in college, I want to say that to you. <laughs> like, it was coping for a while. Yes. And that is, mm -hmm. there is no shame in surviving mm -hmm. and coping through yes. things when you were not given a freaking tool or a point yeah. in the right direction. And so I, I want to actually pause here and invite anyone mm -hmm. listening because this, this is really important that I, I don't know if the intuitive eating space does enough, you know, Hortensio is sharing it doesn't. for this to really make explicit the way these forces are the heartbeat of quote diet culture. The diet culture is a palatable word we use to describe everything that Hortensia just described and went through herself. And so I want anyone listening to just reflect for a moment, what are your identities? What were the identities of the people around you in your college or university experience? If you didn't go to college, that's okay. Maybe think about your twenties, who was around you during that formative time when you're developing your eating behaviors independently for the first time away from family. Observe that. What was that like for you? Because I, I betcha we could come up with hundreds of different examples of, of that. And I think that's important to name as you heal your relationship with food now. I, I don't know that it can happen fully without looking back at that time. So everyone just think of that. Note it in your mind as we continue. 
What do you think? Yes. Is that a good idea to just pick, give some breathing room to that? Because I think it's too important to just say, we really have to reflect and process that. Absolutely. And to be compassionate with yourself in this journey, this is not your fault. Mm-hmm. You are not to blame if you have an eating disorder, if you did things to your body. Mm-hmm. It's not your fault. It's the systems in place. It is diet culture. And so there needs to be a lot of compassion for yourself. And releasing that is part of the healing process. And it's it's a journey and it's very painful. Not a lot of people, you know, it's easy to be in those diets. It's in this, it's not easy to be in a cycle. I mean, nothing's easy, but it is hard to, to leave diet culture because you want to heal and and it's scary to heal because <laughs> you have to address a lot of things that you can eat the best food and you still might feel oppressed. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're not the same thing they're related, <laughs> but they're not the same thing. Yeah. Sure. Part of, you know, the, the academic setting and the climate and cap- campus is going to impact, you know, gaining weight, even losing weight, not sleeping enough, like that's that's part of the college college, you know, experience, but it's, we can't normalize it. So institutions can do better, especially like the wellness centers, the counseling center, like all these different resources in college campuses, the courses on nutrition, like there's a lot of work to be done because that further enforces these oppressive ideas. Um, and then the negative views about your body that we weren't born hating our bodies, you know, the institution of the family, the social media plays a big role. So we get to college and, and if you've been oppressed, if you were marginalized growing up and you have all this freedom, and then maybe you think that the way that you're treating your body is liberating, but maybe you're hurting your body, right? And you don't know. So again, I think compassion is, we need a lot of compassion. Like people need to be compassionate with their, with us, but we need to be compassionate with ourselves. And that's yeah. the hardest part with ourselves. Yeah. You sometimes don't know to be compassionate with yourself. I certainly did it in my twenties. Um, I was very like, be the best, do the best fastest. There's all this stuff about white supremacy culture, by the way. Mm-hmm. And what Absolutely. Those traits within, yeah. um, I'll put it, we did a a link to that uh, document in a previous episode. I'll put it back if you're like, what the hell is the white supremacy culture? (laughs) Essentially, an academic, I don't remember the author, identified um, traits and qualities that link to white supremacy. And they are tools used by white folks in some instance on purpose and sometimes implicitly not on purpose, just because it's a habitual learned habit and behavior to maintain these systems of oppression that we're talking about. And so my perspective in dietetics and as a function of that, like the college years, when they're training you to be a dietitian, when I read that list of behaviors, I was like, (laughs) I'm like, it's describing my early managers, (laughs) like everybody. And I remember at that time feeling, even even as a white woman feeling Mm -hmm. like, yuck, Mm-hmm. Like I didn't feel safe. I was highly anxious being trained during that time. Again, I cannot imagine mm-hmm. if I weren't in the mm-hmm. dominant yeah. a presentation. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah. these things that, you know, impacted us personally in different ways through our training are happening no matter the discipline. It's, it's absolutely everywhere. So, yeah. And like you said, for you having that language and finding the literature 
gave validation to your experience. Yeah. That's powerful. Well, that's what you kind of keep saying here is like the, having the language is really key because that imposter syndrome or I don't know if that's the label, but that that whisper of like, you don't know, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. oh, you're not good enough. Or what do you think enough. you're doing? Yes, that that's shame, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and mm -hmm. that can come about when we are gaslit or made to believe yes. that our experiences aren't what we think they are. So yeah, at, at the root, if we can label some of these behaviors mm -hmm. we're doing or others are doing, mm -hmm. that's, that takes your diet culture, anti-diet mm -hmm. work to the next level. Like that's the, that's the boss battle. If you can start mm -hmm. to look at these behaviors from that lens, mm -hmm. for you, and it's powerful for changing the world around you. I think that's what we would both like to see is maybe not having to have these conversations in the future <laughs> absolutely awesome. and to get there is another word it's a journey, <laughs> journey. <laughs> it's also a journey to get there to how we have been conditioned to think about diet culture how it has been also uh, defined by white dietitians and nutritionists and the dominant definition of Ooh, diet culture discussion list but can we talk about this for a second yes i have my own definition i will share it with you it will eventually be copyright and and because okay, i want okay. to uh, upcoming but could i just i want to explain what you're yes. holding right now so yes potencia just took her copy of anti-diet uh by christy harrison i personally have no qualms with christy i think she's fabulous as an educator. i love it yes however I think you're alluding to the fact that when we look at a lot of the predominant the books of authority on what is health at every size, what is anti-diet, the most popular visible books are 1000% written by thin white. Yes. And so I'm yes. going to, I'm going to let you take it from here. So what has been your, your thoughts on that? Um, frustration mm -hmm. and I am not being apologetic about my feelings because they're valid as a woman of color and higher education, I have always feel like I've been in an upstream battle for everything to just be visible, to have my research be approved for everything, you know? And, and so when I am in the anti-diet space and learning more about it, and I'm reading these books, I start feeling very frustrated, very upset and angry because I feel like I love the books, they're amazing, but they lack our voices, they lack our experiences. And you get to a point where you're like, I'm tired and I wanna cry right now. Um, Why, it's 2022. <laughs> and you know, uh, thank goodness for um, amazing women of color in anti-diet space on social media, the black nutritionist, Danina, um, Shauna, there's so many, women of color, black women, queer women doing rewriting <laughs> the anti-diet space, yeah. but, but it has been, and, and I'm sure they can relate, you know, I speak for myself, but they're also frustrated. That's why they're writing books. That's mm -hmm. why they're writing from those experiences. And so as much as I love all these books that I read, I get to a point, I think the last book I purchased by a white woman, I'm like, okay, I'm done. This is affecting my mental health. Yes. <laughs> Actually, it, I'm not going to say the title of that book. I bought it and I'm like, why did I buy this book? It's the same narrative. Yeah. And it's exclusionary. It's already, we already talked about this from this perspective. <laughs> yes. Or, or, 
again, like pause point for those listening. Like if you don't share, uh, even if, no, I'm going to say if you don't share, even if you are a white person, seeking out and finding books on anti-diet, particularly on body image, especially around body image, because there is a nuance that I can never, I can't speak to. <laughs> yes. And I want to, yes. And oh. I'm sorry to interrupt before I forget. Decolonizing Wellness by Dalina Kinsey is a great book for anyone to read who wants to have an intersectional lens. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. This is brings so much hope. And I know that more books will be written. And I hope that one day I will also write one. <laughs> I see that in your future. You, you're like effusive. The words are just spilling out of you. I can't imagine how it wouldn't become a book for you. <laughs> but you know, how do I so as a health coach, as a mother, as a community member, and as an academic, I have privilege. And I have some I have some power on what I can do. So currently there's a, a, a edited book that I'm working with a colleague. It's Latinx studies. It's an academic undergraduate course book for students on Latino studies. And um, I wrote a chapter about um, food and borders. And so, you know, making those interventions. So adding to this wealth of knowledge, you know, this amazing book by Christy Harrison. So adding to these conversations and that other women of color and queer folks are gonna be adding because these perspectives are so important. If you wanna really bring healing to the different communities that we are part of, we need to be part of these publishing spaces. We need to be in social media. Yeah. And, and, and push, push, we're pushing diet. We're pushing the way we're thinking about diet, anti-dieting in ways that may not resonate with everyone, might feel threatening, might feel bold, loud, revolutionary. Well, you're, hitting, you're hitting on it. Cause I'm going, okay. Cause I won't, I won't deny that I have had this within me before where it's like, that's, I really want to read all these stories and perspectives, but it's not really my, you know, it's not really my, that's a very, I think that's a normal reaction as mm -hmm. adult learners. Relevance is important. Like if you don't have relevance for the material you're learning, it's hard to want to learn it. Yes. That, that is mm -hmm. adult learning principles. Mm -hmm. And so to work within that principle for anyone who is white and goes, you know, these, all the, all these other stories, I just need to read what's important to me and I need to move on. Anyone listening to this podcast, you know, the mission is for us to break the diet cycle. I really believe that individuals healing and labeling and doing this work means that they have an ability. And you've inspired me with your story because sometimes you are the white women in the room where there is one BIPOC person who is going to ask you for your mentorship and support. And if you don't understand their story or you don't know that you don't understand their story and you don't know how to listen and ask questions, you're going to fuck it up. You're going to mm -hmm. fuck it up. And that is a difference between someone like Hortensia, who has this amazing, inspired, successful story where she's able to help more people like her in communities they are. That's the ripple effect that you miss out on when you don't read the story of another person. So that's me telling all y'all. <laughs> it's normal to not want to read the stories that aren't your own sometimes. But without it, what are you missing out on? What are we missing out on by not listening? Just let, listen, listen to someone else's example. So I don't know how you feel about her, that, Hortensia, but that is my thought. Yeah. No, about. and I appreciate you saying that. And I'm going to kind of be a little bit bold here to say that we have always had to learn and listen 
to white perspectives all our life in our educational system. And we continue to do that in the anti-diet space. Mm -hmm. So as a professor, I have a responsibility to my community, to my students, to my white students, to all of my students, that they all understand systems of oppression, that they understand what, that my white students understand in the most loving way that I can for them to understand what privilege is, what white fragility is, what what is that my job is not to tell them what it is to be an ally, you know, but to give them the tools so that they can have these courageous conversations because the K through 12 system did not give them. And they get to my college class and they're expected to co- talk about inequality and race and immigration. Oh, oh, it's just like, Where to they begin? can't do it because they're scared because they haven't been able to, those stories haven't been told, but those are stories and our experiences are part of history. We just haven't been given that opportunity. So again, we don't learn about these stories because they're not in our college textbooks. They're not in our elementary school, right? So we read about white people all the time. We know, we understand, but they don't have to. It's a choice. We don't have a choice because it's part of the curriculum. Right, right. This was way more powerful and helpful than I hoped it would be. The college years was something I wanted to talk about, just listening to clients, knowing that that is a time where these disordered behaviors can really take root. And sometimes it's when they flare up at their worst. And so there's probably a couple different listeners right now. There's maybe someone who knows a college student and is thinking of them. Maybe someone who experienced challenges during their college years. You know, when we think about some takeaways for listeners, like what we believe or you believe, especially from your lens being among college students so often, I'm not hip no more. I don't know what's happening in the classroom. What would be maybe one or two things that you wish were status quo commonplace to help protect folks during that very vulnerable time when disordered eating can take root? What do you think would be helpful? Protection. Another topic that is so important is date rape. I graduated from college a long time ago, but this is very common, you know, women getting raped by their boyfriends or, or, you know, going to a party and drinking and we need to have institutions, we need to hold institutions accountable to protect um, women, to protect individuals from marginalized identities, especially from the LGBTQ community. So that's one, like feeling safe in your college is important in your institution, your university, one. Two, having a safe place in the institution. So is there a professor that you can talk to? Is there a counselor? Can you go to the wellness center or the mental health? You know, they have different names in these institutions. Number three, is there a center for for students of color, for queer students, for Muslim students? Um, You know, there are. So you need to look for those resources. So I think those are like key things, key things. Another one, I know we didn't talk, I know we didn't talk about it too much, but like food insecurity as a college student is a huge one. You're struggling, you might not have enough financial aid. There's just so many challenges and barriers Mm -hmm. to getting a good education and then to having housing and and food. So food pantries, making, I think that again, going back to the institution, having institutions that can provide uh, students with food. Where I work at the community college, we have a food pantry. 
there's a lot of work we can do on, on other things too, which I'm going to advocate for. But I know that college campuses have food pantries. So also tapping into that, tapping into the community food pantries. I think that's all a part of, of helping, you know. Um, it is difficult, right? Especially if you are going to have begin to have a, a, a bad relationship with food or you know you might have an eating disorder and, and you have an abusive partner you know there's just a lot of other added factors but ultimately if anything please find your support find people that you trust a professor your friends build community it is very important especially for those who come from marginalized identities to succeed in these academic settings you need a support system and if if it's just one person it is one person and you have me here so they can reach always can reach out to me it's beautiful yeah so for individuals remembering to reach out to community especially if you can find those safe spaces that can be a real lifeline of connection to help protect you from disordered eating and body image issues from really flaring up in a way that holds you back you know i did i have I, I have so many examples, but I do want to share this one. It was many years ago. It was, um, I was teaching at a different community college and I had a, a we were talking about body image. See, I, oh, just a freedom. I'm able to talk about all these topics in class. And I remember this student who came up to me and said, you know what? She was started crying and she said, now I understand why my boyfriend says why can't you have that body because those are unrealistic bodies and she was crying she said i need to do something about this and i was like i'm here if you need me so she missed class for like two weeks she came back she told me she broke up with her boyfriend because her body image mm -hmm. you know part of it was because of this abusive boyfriend she was with who was you know shaming her and everything else so I didn't know. I mean, I know that my class brings healing and, and causes it triggers, but yeah. the fact that this student was That's able and willing. Because mm -hmm. I can see where people might have a hard time connecting. Like, how is date rape related to body image or yeah. services about healthy relationships and things like that? Like that yeah. that's an example. Like if you have someone in your life who is making it difficult for you to change your body. Uh, it does, no self-help book is going to help work through that. We have to change the structure. So yes, that's a, I'm so glad you, you gave that, that example. Cause it helps to color in and, you know, if you didn't go through that, you might be like, what, that is an example of what can happen to young people working through things in an environment where there aren't a lot of connections. So beautiful example. When one question, I guess I have, cause we talked about like what individuals can do to protect themselves. And then maybe what we as parents, aunties, uncles, community members can hold institutions accountable for. Like we want our colleges to have these things, I'm thinking particularly of community colleges. You know, mm -hmm. I think for the four-year private universities, there's a whole other conversation about mm -hmm. how much it costs. <laughs> I wonder about these smaller colleges or community colleges and ways that people can, are, is there ways for like community members to support their community college? Because I, I would imagine there's fewer resources in your type of a setting compared to like the state university or the mm -hmm the private universities. Is that yes. true? Yeah. You, yeah. I've, you know, I've worked, I had the privilege and honor to work at the university at the four uh, California state institution level. And my heart was at the community college, but building 
partnerships. That's why I, I live in the community. I work at the community college and I contribute to, to my community. So organizations, nonprofits, even um, businesses, you know, to collaborate with, with, with these educational entities with different programs, uh, collaboration is key and, and bringing awareness to different sorts of issues. And that can happen across the board from community to state to private universities. And, and we do see that happening. Just for example, um, we are having undocumented action week uh, next month. And I, a couple of uh, institutions, uh, higher ed, have reached out to me to talk about health and wellness, and I'm going to link it to immigration and link it to youth, to our college students. And so th that's exactly what we need to do, right? So if I can say, like, I'm kind of like an example <laughs> of what needs to happen in our, in our community is bringing right. people from the who are from the community, even though they hold privileges, but that we understand that we've been through those experiences and that we can navigate that we're the bridge between our students and the community. And we have many of those. So I think that's, that's, that's what we are doing already, you know, and all over California and other in other states too. Yeah, it's exciting to hear. It's exciting to hear. And ultimately, like if you Maybe you own your own business, or maybe you're in a position in your organization where you can influence philanthropy or community connections. That's a mm -hmm. cool thing to consider. Like you might have been successful in your individual body image work. And one way you can pay it forward beyond, beyond mm -hmm. your children, the humans you make yes, is create communities that are just safer for bodies to be in all bodies. Yes. Yes. Financially, yeah. you know, yeah. with your time, with whatever resources you're able to do, everyone can contribute. Everyone makes a difference. Let's just make it safe. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that slow a lot of these issues that we're Absolutely. just for everyone. And that I cannot thank you enough for opening your heart. I know these things are challenging to talk about and we appreciate your time and your willingness to share them with us today. Where can people find and support your work or maybe find your book when it publishes? How do we keep up with all that you're doing? Um, I currently only have Instagram. I don't know how people do it with other platforms. I just don't know. It's Dr. Hortensia Jimenez, H-O-R-T-E-N-C-I-A. J-I-M-E-N-E-Z, Jimenez. <laughs> I will link it for everybody too. So right in the show notes, you can jump yes. in. Yes. Um, yeah, that's my social media. Follow me, support my work. You can also reach out to me. I'm sure you'll link my email. Um, if you have any questions, um, I'm here. I'm here because I, I love what I what I do. I'm passionate and I, I want to help. You can see that. And you do help. I am just so impressed and amazed and inspired. I hope we'll be able to keep in touch uh, outside of our podcast convos here. And I just thank you so much for being on the pod. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you. you. I appreciate it too. Time. I like to snack when editing these podcast episodes. And before I summarize and close us out here today, I have to tell you, I have discovered cherry flavored craisins. Have you had them? They're delicious. I think it's important that we put dried fruit on the radar. We're often told that dried fruit is not it. Well, I'm here to tell you, dried fruit is very it. Nutritionally different than whole fruit and an excellent choice, particularly if you're, you're doing some close focus tasking like I was just doing. So you heard it here first. This episode was super powerful. I am including so much in show notes for you 
the decolonizing wellness book that Hortensia mentioned, a link to uh, her Instagram, a definition of white supremacy characteristics that we talked about. And importantly, I'd like to share um, Hortensia's Venmo because she is actively doing community work. This is not something she asked me to do, but if you really feel inspired by her and supportive of her work, head on over to the Venmo, um, buy her a coffee, give her a little donation to support the work that she is doing out in her community because it's incredible. The college years, I don't know what your story was, but it is such a time for so many people. And often when I'm talking to clients, you know, I'm working with them 30s, 40s, sometimes up to their 60s. And in these sessions, often for the first time, they're telling me about the origins of their disordered eating or eating disorder. And so many people received no help at all through that time. They didn't have access or even know to go talk to a counselor or dietitian. And Lord knows at that time, I don't know how many of them would have been health at every size, intuitive eating, anti-diet informed. Many of us grew up in the heyday of diet culture where problems of eating, you know, if you didn't have the body type that people linked to disordered eating, which for many is that thin, thin trope, there was a lot of, there was a lot of empathy or understanding. And I think in a lot of ways, that is something that my mother faced in her bigger body where you know, if you didn't look the part, your struggle with food was not seen as in the same ways that other eating disorders or disordered eating were seen. I love to change that. <laughs> and I'd like to let you know that if you are, you know, this episode made some connections for you, like, oh yeah, no, I was struggling with my relationship to body and food during those college years. And I never really had a chance to address that. It's never too late to reframe and explore that time to learn new skills. Many of my clients who have these realizations later in life, it can feel really cathartic and freeing to say, you know, almost talk to their younger selves and say, you know, I see you, I see what you went through back then. And I see how resilient you were. You got yourself to this moment and now you get to use entirely new skills. And so I'm just so appreciative. Hortensia could give us such a masterclass, a breadth of knowledge, a bigger picture lens on this. This impacts a lot of people because of the social forces at play. So whatever way you need to reclaim that time in your life, maybe it's by buying craisins that formerly were forbidden off-limits food. Maybe it's by finding language for that time. Like Hortensia kept saying, you know, is it purchasing a book or like you're doing here, hanging out on a podcast to help yourself understand yourself. Give yourself credit for all those things that you're doing. Many of us were not given a role model or a template in our families or in our communities for what it means to break the diet cycle. It's hard work. A lot of it is mental work within ourselves that nobody can see. Give yourself credit for that. Show yourself compassion and know that these podcast episodes are going to continue to support you in your work out there. I'm just so, so glad you're here. If you haven't yet, I would love for you to leave a rating of the podcast wherever you are listening. That's exactly how other people can find this work. If you want to do me the ultimate honor, share your favorite episode with a friend. Let someone in your life know that it's okay 
to break the diet cycle too, if they want to. We'll be back next week with more episodes. If you have had the cherry flavored craisins, let me know. The wait list for the group coaching program is growing. And I'm going to email those of you on the list a little later this week just to say hi and let you know that the wait list is still open, that I've received your name, and I will let you know when my groups open back up. But for now, it is one-to-one coaching. So if you would like help sooner than later, you definitely know you're the kind of person who benefits from one-to-one work. That is my bread and butter. It is the mainstay and the signature program that I offer. I would love to get to know you, hear what you've been working on and see if this program would be a fit. You can apply at melissalandrynutrition.com where you can find a whole bunch of other resources beyond the podcast as well. Until next time, be good to your good body.